welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, episode 83. This is the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters, and the questers that are Josh and Dan. I am Dan. I am Josh. And there we are. On today's episode, we will be discussing all things quizzical, because we got another little small stack of emails. Uh, one from a returning friend, Kogorsi, uh, and I get to do my voice later, so if you don't like it, sorry, tough. Um, but other than that, we're going to get to all things aeroentical, because today's discussion, after the email questions, is about Alamaze, the Elfbane dragon. So we'll get there shortly. Until then, uh, let's get through the emails as fast as we possibly can, because this actually episode might go longer than an hour. How's that sound? Fine with me. Cool. Hi, Josh and Dan. If you're looking for more content along with dragons and horrors, I would love to hear descriptions and discussions of, on all the various secret societies and cults in Earth Dawn. Thanks for continuing a great show, K. Scott. Thoughts? I think that's more stuff for us to talk about. We kind <laughs> of talked a little bit, not so much about the secret societies, but the, a couple of the ones in the secret societies book from first edition are yeah. cults or secret societies organized around the mad passions. There's one for each of the three mad passions mm -hmm. in that book. And we didn't really talk about them when we were discussing passions, the passion and their quest doors back in those earlier episodes. So yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we can visit have... them, but also the, the other ones as well. We kind of mentioned the dragons network, I think yes. is one of the ones that's mentioned in that book as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll get through those. I've got the, uh, the houses of the Serpent River kind of planned shortly, a few months down the road. And then the secret societies as well, just to kind of cover all of our, all of our bases and all the other source books that might need to be updated for fourth editions. So that's why we have Josh here. Uh, next email from Brian. <clears throat> Hi there. I was just surprised when someone asked whether the Lightbringer or Bodyguard disciplines would be coming to fourth edition as paths that you didn't recommend looking at the Panda Gaming Grove blog. The Panda, of course, being Morgan Weeks, who has a major hand in writing the rules for Earth Dawn these days. I know that he has relatively recently made a Lightbearer path, and there is a Bodyguard discipline as well to Circle 8. From before paths were a thing, if he gets around to it, I suspect he'd convert it to a path nowadays. But of course, he has only has so much time to do all the things he'd like to do. Now, of course, new material on that site is not official, but it is still written by someone who knows their stuff quite well. Furthermore, if there is an official release at some point, it is likely that there will have been some lessons learned from these earlier designs. So if anyone is interested in seeing that material made official, it's not a terrible idea to use what has been written and let them know what works well. And if something doesn't work well, to do your best to explain why. In the meanwhile, it is much easier than designing the entire thing from scratch yourself. Smiley face. Not to mention, it is a useful resource for a variety of other reasons as well. The Rogues Gallery is a GM's treasure trove, and the new creatures can provide some encounters that your players may not instantly recognize and be able to recite the lore word for word. In our group, we've enjoyed many of the rules changes on the blog, although we admittedly do not use every single one of them. Just thought I'd pop in to share a few words. Brian. Yes, if I have not mentioned Morgan's <laughs> blog in the past. We have been remiss. I have often talked about how wonderful Morgan is and, and how much of a friend and co-creator co-creator and partner in, in design and whatnot he has been since he agreed to help way back when we were working on the, the core books. But if I had not mentioned his blog, absolutely check out the blog, uh, Panda Gaming Grove, Panda's Earth Dawn Gaming Grove. You can, you'll be able to find it there. There is so much stuff there. In fact, it was his blog <laughs> in the first place and all of the analysis and so forth of the third edition material mm -hmm. that he had done kind of at that point that drew our attention and led us to ask him to contribute. Yeah, the rogues gallery is a whole bunch of Game Master characters, a lot of them adepts, something that Morgan has been working on, trying to find good ways to simplify Game Master character adepts for use in a game, particularly if they are intended to sort of be combat, just sort of a one-off kind of thing, rather than going to all the effort of necessarily creating a full adept with all the talents and skills and everything, yeah. and just kind of statting them out and, and setting the, the stat block as a creature with some specific powers that are flavorful depending on the discipline. It's really, really cool. And yeah, some of the stuff that he has developed for books that have come out was the result of 
you know, stuff that he had been working on and thinking about yeah. before. And there yeah. is some stuff in there that is absolutely the result of things that we have learned over the course of the past few years of fourth edition development, the sort of pie in the sky, mm-hmm. you know, maybe if at some point in the distant future, we go to a new edition, the type of, I think, maybe more radical revisualization of Earth Dawn, because I think that if Morgan and or I are still around for the for the point of a fifth edition, mm-hmm. that we would both want to do a much more radical reconceptualization of some of the stuff in the game. Fair. And that'll but be a that is also a <laughs> gosh. Look at my wrist in the time. Nice. I have to be somewhere else. Yeah. That'll be a whole different episode on a podcast is if we could, would we, how would we do it? What would we do? Uh, yeah, that's a, we'll say, we'll, we'll shelve that for a later discussion when we're out of things to talk about. Like when we get on around to, to like episode 200 or something. Yeah, if we get that far. Um, we'll uh, ha- tackle two emails we got from Rasmus now, because he sent two of them in back to back. So, hi, later arrival to your brilliant podcast. So currently listening to episode 18. He's about 65 episodes behind, which is fine. So Josh has to think now about 30 odd weeks in the in the past. Uh, you talked about coins and the possibility to 3D print some. Why not add that to your next Kickstarter as an add-on? You could do both .sll files for the do-it-yourself types, but more important, you could sell real Barsavian metal coins. That would be awesome. It should be doable as a lot of board games on Kickstarter has that as an option as well. Anyway, just an idea. Keep up the excellent work with the podcast. Love listening to it whenever I have time. That is an interesting idea. We are starting to investigate 3D printed stuff. The Aetherstream Interceptor... Yeah. tabletop board game thing. The mm-hmm. prototypes were 3D printed and the designs of the fighters were kind of put together in STL files, I guess is the the type that it is, so that they could be 3D printed. Although the actual plan was to have them more traditionally manufactured. The plan is at some point to still have that game come together. There's some playtesting and revisions and stuff like that going on. Yeah, The difficulty of doing a stretch goal that is a different kind of product like that complicates the logistics and handling and fulfillment of a Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And also just in general, from the lessons that we learned in the first Kickstarter, that we don't want to offer stretch goals or add-ons that are going to end up requiring a lot of extra work. But that may be something to toss out there as a question for the various locations like on Twitter or the discord or the group and say, Hey, if this is something that we offered, Mm -hmm. is this something that people would be interested in as a, as a tchotchke as a little add on kind of thing Mm -hmm. and get a sense of what would be the potential interest and whether it would be worthwhile well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, your... it's, it's, it's an interesting idea because I, I am a little bit just personally gun shy about the idea of doing stuff that is not books mm-hmm. or posters or stuff that like all comes out of the same sort of print location because yeah. then we need to coordinate with potentially another provider Thank to do that sort of thing and handling the fulfillment. And there's a lot of sort of logistical questions that come up there, but. Yeah, it's it maybe yeah. maybe worth something investigating if people actually. Yeah, I, th- I think we can go back to, to like the Earth Dawn dice that Q Workshop put out and see, you know, because they were retailed I think for twenty four or thirty dollars American, and then now they're for sale on eBay for like eighty. So <laughs> I don't know. We could not my part of the end, but we can take a look at it. So Rasmus's second email because now he's on to episode nineteen. Sorry for revisiting old stuff. Feel free to ignore if you don't want to spend time on old stuff. I'm not a big fan of Beastmasters in general because of their menagerie and easy way to control animal encounters, but I really don't understand why they get claw frenzy. They then have a multi-attack talent in Journeyman tier, where the other fighting disciplines get their at their master tier. What was the design choice behind this? This talent is just kind of crazy. I've always house ruled that my, uh, that's a second attack as that is more on par with other disciplines. Okay. 
Rasmus has a question about Beastmasters and Claw Frenzy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, a couple of things. It. One, Claw Frenzy goes back all the way to first edition. Oh, Claw yeah. Frenzy was available to Beastmasters, I believe, at, at Eighth Circle in first edition and has always been a kind of iconic Beastmaster ability that they get just claw shape and unarmed combat. And then they don't get any additional kind of attack until they get Claw Frenzy, which is a huge spike in their combat output. It is the yeah. point at which, especially in first edition, the Windling Beastmaster would be a holy terror. banana pants because <laughs> they could spend a karma on each attack that they make with Claw Frenzy and each damage test that they make using the claw shape through Claw Frenzy and can burn through a whole lot of karma mm-hmm. in a very short period of time. Yeah. The first edition version of Claw Frenzy uh, was kind of broken, especially because it allowed so many attacks and didn't have the later fixes where missing an attack would break the chain. Yeah. You would have to decide how many attacks you were going to make and you would take that much strain. In first edition, if you missed an attack in the sequence, it didn't matter. You could still make the rest of them. Mm-hmm. In second edition, I believe, and in later iterations of the talent, the basic idea was you still needed to decide how many attacks you were going to make. But if an attack in the sequence missed, that would stop the chain. So fourth edition kept Claw Frenzy because it was kind of iconic. And because it was in the journeyman tier, it did not get the attention that the other multi-attack talents that appear in the companion do, the ones like multi-attack, multi-shot, the you know, the, the warrior, swordmaster, archer, multi yeah. like true multiple attack talents. And I've said at this point, if there were one thing that I could really go back and change, it would yeah. be to change Claw Frenzy to work the way that those do, which mm-hmm. is to say that you make a test and the test determines how many attacks you get to make. Gotcha. And I think that would greatly scale back some of the issues with Claw Frenzy just as a as a basic talent. Fair. I'm not sure. I can't address what the original design intent of Claw Frenzy was, except for the idea of, you know, the Beastmaster and their claw attacks unarmed combat thing mm-hmm. going on with their animal selves and doing multiple attacks well before any other disciplines get anything to that scale. Yeah. I figured just like attacking like a rabid badger was, you know, maybe the genesis for it. Yeah. I mean, something along those lines, but I, you know, I can't directly address what the design problem, like what the design goal was in that aside from maybe just, oh yeah, they get a really cool Mm -hmm. rabid badger kind of (laughs) Wolverine frenzy (laughs) thing. Yes. And later editions kind of tried to, scale back the the nastiness of it a little bit. But I think the fix that we came up with, the change that we made to other multi-attack talents mm-hmm. in the companion, I think would work really, really well as uh, a fix to Claw Frenzy in the same way. Yeah. So thank you, Rasmus. Enjoy the shows. Uh, you're about 60 behind. So as you listen to them, feel free to send us some new emails as well. So thank you, K. Scott. Thank you, Brian. Uh, on to one from Tim. Greetings, Dan and Josh. This morning, I finished episode 38 while walking the dog in a torrential downpour. Despite my and my dog's sheared misery, I was particularly impressed with your discussion on the attitudes and interaction. Normally, Earth Dawn Survival Guide is 100% Earth Dawn goodness. This one fits 150% in a 100% package. An awe-inspiring feat in anything outside the TARDIS itself. Perhaps it was because you had recorded and lost this particular discussion twice already by the time you got to it in the can. I have a far more solid understanding of Earth Dawn social interaction tests than before. I have been listening straight through to the Earth EDSG since a 15-hour drive at the beginning of July. I've had a dozen or more questions as I've listened, but I've decided to hold off on them until I'm caught up. Thanks to your work and a certain friend rekindling my desire to play Earthdawn, I now have six excited players working on characters. Our first actual adventure session is set for August 26th, 2021. Keep up the excellent work. Thank you again for all the hard work you both put into the Earthdawn Survival Guide. We are all better equipped as players and GMs because of it. Tim. So that certain friend that he mentions is me. Oh, Tim. <laughs> Tim Mind is a- blown. 
<laughs> Tim is a is a buddy of mine. I met him when I was temping for a company that that he was working at up here in Maine back in the yeah. late Day. you know late nineties, <laughs> and ran an Earthdawn game for him yeah. and one of the other guys from the office there and a couple of other folks had a had an Earthdawn game that I ran. You know, so this was back in first edition days and and mm-hmm. whatnot. He was part of sort of the, the regular crew. Yeah. Tim had sort of moved on to other places and, and whatnot mm-hmm. and came back up here for a visit with family or some other sort of thing that was going on back in early July. Yeah. And one evening he came over and we did like a board game night with him and me and the, the kids and, and hung yes. out and caught up and whatnot. And it is probably on his drive back to his home <laughs> down in the mid-Atlantic area from here that he started listening to the survival podcast. Guy. Yeah. That's a quickly, yeah, that's a no, quickly Tim, growing Tim seed great. he planted there. Yeah. Tim is great. And he's been on the discord and asking questions and it's great to kind of reconnect with him and, and rekindle his, appreciation for the game. So it was great to Absolutely. see that email come across. We'll take old players, new players, all doesn't matter who you are, we'll take you. So welcome back, Tim. Please keep the emails coming and or stay active on Discord. We'll see you there too. Uh, on to one from Anthony. Hello, Dan and Josh. The last three months I've been running a new campaign of Earth Dawn. I've been consuming your podcast very rapidly and appreciate the insight you bring to the players and storytellers. At times, it's very helpful to know the reason behind the why. I have a couple of questions about the threaded items. One, I would like to know your feelings on the scope of event that would create a threaded item. Personally, I look at the level of importance or emotional impact an event has to play in the ongoing story. Another option I have used was the unique situation. Lemon, one of my players, mentioned in an email how he used a special forge to make his armor. He was assisted by a spirit of the forge and there was a tremendous amount of raw magic in the area. The player has since learned he was under an effect similar to casting raw magic without a matrix or grimoire. The reason he was crafting the armor was to help his friends. He did not feel like he was strong enough to shield them from danger. I allowed that this unique setting and his emotions were enough to bring the armor to life, so to speak, and it is a novice thread item. Yeah, that all sounds cool. I'm down with that story. I'd love to play in this adventure, um, in this campaign. Number two, I would also like to know your take on how the first question might impact a threaded item. If you have a novice level item and the situation of and events seem to be significant enough, would you make it a journeyman item or higher? What would that do to threads that are already woven to it, since novice threads cost less legend and could be considered weaker? Anthony. So there are a couple of things here. This subject of characters creating their own thread items, whether intentionally or as the result of events in the campaign, or the growth of thread items over the course of a campaign is something that has come up quite a number of times over the years. It is not something that was ever really addressed in first edition, or even really in later editions, even up through fourth, we don't really talk about that as a concept, in part because of the strong theme in the game of discovering the past and the need to research and learn about the history of an item in order to unlock its secrets. That said, I completely understand the desire that people would have to have their own items become more powerful, whether becoming a thread item or gaining more power as a thread item over the course of a campaign. I don't really have any strong guidelines for how to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm reluctant, and I think Morgan likewise is a little bit reluctant to create hard and fast rules for that, because that is an opportunity for people who are not necessarily interested in the story and narrative potential of that, but Mm -hmm. rather in the twinkifying number avenue of saying, this has been published in the book, therefore, you need to let me do this. Fair. That said, to kind of address the questions, if you feel as a game master that a particular event in the course of your campaign is significant enough that it should perhaps make an item a thread item. I really, really think that you would want to make it a novice item. The 
time scales and amount of magical interaction that would be involved as far as I perceive it mm-hmm. to make more powerful items is something that kind of is a little bit beyond the scope of a normal campaign. Setting aside the rules and guidelines that are in the companion for deliberately enchanting, deliberately creating a thread item through the process of enchanting, that's separate from the spontaneous creation of a magic item that I think captures people's attention so strongly. So if you want it to happen, it should be a novice item. In the Legends of Earthdawn game, Feindar's Wit yeah. was a non-magical sword. It was sword. just a regular sword that Feindar, the, the elf air sailor, Rusty's original character, was carrying. Mm-hmm. And then he died and Scratch took it up and is sort of carried on in memory of his companion and so forth. Yeah. It's been created. It is a novice thread item. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, you really want to lean into the role-playing and storytelling and narrative aspects of that. Okay, it becomes a thread item, but it's novice, and you kind of decide what the powers are going to be based on what fits from the from the story. When it comes to existing items that maybe you want to have grow during the campaign, you wouldn't actually change the tier of the item. At that point, what you're looking at are quote-unquote, legendary items. A standard novice thread item is limited to four ranks, but you can have a legendary novice item that would have more, but those subsequent ranks would have to be unlocked through deeds, usually. And those items, they still stay at the original, in the original tier, in the original cost structure that they were a part of, but they gained their power through the the interaction with magic and through notable events that they were involved with in some way. And so what you would do is, okay, you've got your initial four. Well, then to get, say, rank five or rank six, if you are going to kind of expand it a little bit farther, as the characters maybe get into higher journeymen or even into low, you know, circles nine, ten kind of thing, and you want they want to continue using that item. And so you want to have that item grow along with them as well, rather than run into the situation of, I've now got a sword that is not like its ca- its potential is capped out. You just basically have some some deeds. You find moments in in the narrative like major campaign milestones or significant events. I wouldn't do it of like, oh, you blew up your dice six times. Now you've got a like there would have to be a really strong narrative story baseline for that. And then say, okay, that was the deed that increased the power. So now you have a rank five that's available and it does this kind of thing. So that's my feeling on that. Fair. I I got nothing to add. I think all that's done quite well. So any further specific examples, by all means, you know, send them to us. We'll see if we can have you know, pick Josh's brain on the rest of those. Uh, now it's time for Josh to go to the bathroom or get a drink because we have a very long email. We said the longest for last. This is our old friend, Kogorsi, who writes to us. Greetings, Dan and Josh. I write to you now for the first time on my own, having learned to read and write that silly language you call English from my friend, the scribe. It has been the better part of a year since my last correspondence, and for that I give you my sincere apologies. After a year of roughing it in the wilds, I have come to my home in Carafad, and the elders have scolded me as a churl and poor friend for not staying in touch with friends. Although I believe they were referring to the tribe, I understand it applies to my other friends as well. I must also mention that I got the impression that Dan misses using my voice while he reads my letters on the show. I find it a great honor that he is up to the task, and he is welcome as an honorary orc and member of my tribe. As it has been such a long time since my last message, I hope I don't prattle on for too long, and if I do, feel free to break it up into parts. I'll catch you up briefly on my recent activities. I am now a Master Axe Master, formerly known as the Gigantic Two-Handed Axe Master. My disagreeable Ghost Master insists that I use two feeble elf-sized weapons to advance my discipline, so, with many regrets, I had a great weaponsmith split my glorious gigantic devil bearded axe in two. I still have three righteous beards, but now two of them are on separate axes. Probably too big for still, still for an elf, so I might be able to keep my pride. I have been listening to the show every week, even on the road, but I've been unable to write in as I was pretty busy for a while. 
Returning home didn't change this one bit, though. Our horses have been serving themselves as lunch to some wyverns, and of course it should be Master Kogorsi that deal with it. No mention of the anger it may bring from the dragon that hatched them, and surely the rich Axemaster can afford to pay for the losses of the herd. Ugh. Anyways, I must comment about the subjects of the show since we last spoke. I am delighted to tell you I listened to every one, even though I expected to skip the quester topics being what you would call a secular name-giver. Good advice from dragons to pay them no mind. Although I did find the show surprisingly of interest to me, just please don't forward any of those quester missionaries my address. I get pestered enough already as it is. Your discussion of Carafod brought me great joy. And just to let you know, we are far enough away from Landis that we don't quite hold so much of a grudge against talent-stealing humans as they do in some parts. Our little clan has humans, elves, and even a handful of Tuscrang. We would welcome those strange-sized nimgivers as well, but we raise only the finest horses and those who aren't the proper size to ride them have a rough time out here. As to dragons, I enjoyed those episodes as well, and even though my response is quite tardy, I would like to add that I would very much like to hear more. Even more so should you go at length on discussing our most glorious and beneficent patron dragon of Carafod. I was relieved to hear you both speak so respectfully of dragons, as I value your well-being, which leads me on to an important topic. Back in my slightly more reckless youth, when I was known as the Barber of Bartertown, I made the enmity of a member of the royal family of Thrall. Seems he didn't like me courting his daughter and shaving the beard of his oldest son with my gigantic two-handed axe. Although I do not deny the accusations, I was eventually charged with some minor crimes and given community service and what you would call a restraining order. My service had me working for a sanitation crew with the Muckers Guild of Thrall. They learned to appreciate the hard work of an orc that was willing to get in the muck and get his hands dirty, so to speak. So when my service was up, they insisted I join their guild. We still keep in touch on occasion, and I will say they finally caught up to me with a frantic and surely expensive grave message when I arrived home recently. It seems that word of your show has spread, and some in Thrall are even able to, to listen. The muckers were a little hot under the collar for some of the things said in the Bloodwood episode. They say they are petitioning the king to file a formal order to cease and desist, but I assured them that I could discuss the issue with you without legal action being necessary. It would appear, at least as the translation appears in Throlic, that Josh called our great queen of the wood a garbage person. In Landis and some other parts, we muckers are known colloquially as garbage people or garbage name givers and sometimes garbage takers. The members of my esteemed guild dislike associations with the people of the Bloodwood for many reasons, including their dipl diplomat's penchant for clogging the sewers with their too large for the pipe's use of Bloodwood tree leaves to wipe. I personally do not take such offense to Josh calling her a garbage person, but I am concerned that our great queen of the wood may not take a liking to it. Certainly, no one would speak of a dragon like that, but of course her majesty is no dragon. Hopefully, you are distant enough to not garner her attention in wrath. Even better would be the possibility that garbage person is a huge compliment I am unaware of being so new to your language. Either way, I wish you safe travels and a full belly, the two most important things in my clan. Anyways, I made a promise to discuss the matter, and I will leave it at that. Sorry for filling my letter with hardly any questions or suggestions. Life as a master is not nearly as fulfilling as I expected it to be. Everyone seems to think I should do increasingly dangerous jobs that pester and annoy those much stronger than me. I have half a mind to run off to a distant library and join the Scholar Path. Good speaking to you both, and as I say in my parts, may your drinking cups stay filled as your belly and your worries part with the winds. Your greatest friend, Kogorsi. P.S. If Dan finishes reading this without needing an elementalist to heat food for his throat, he has passed the first test of initiation to my tribe. Next and final test is a single swig of Hurlg. I've got nothing to say to that, except that was amazing. And wow. scene. And scene. Thank you, Kagorsi, for that Absolutely. lovely missive. You want to discuss the whole garbage person thing? It's not a mistranslation. No. <laughs> it's a different context, and it's not no. a compliment. No. In this case, garbage person is not a person who collects no. garbage, which is a noble and honorable profession. And necessary. This is a person who is garbage, which is to say they probably should just get uh, taken away and left on a rubbish tip somewhere. Yeah. And um, if Alakia doesn't like it, what's she going to do to me? Nothing. Nothing at all. But anyway, <clears throat> so on to thank you everyone for writing in. We appreciate all the emails. Love them all dearly and love answering questions, especially when we get to pick Josh's brain. So thank you for all of those. On to the second half of the episode, the arrow and tickle portion where Josh gets to talk more than I do finally. 
And we're going to talk about Alamaze. And Josh actually prepped for this one. <laughs> I actually prepped for this. So, disclaimer. First off, I did read this, the chapter from the original Dragon's Book draft. It's probably very similar to the one in the Living Room Games version. Probably. But I've. it was easier for me to find my version of the original. Yeah, fair. So I read the chapter and I went... Oh, this is where a lot of the secrets of <laughs> the dragon's relationship to the immortal elves gets or got spilled. And so yeah. a lot of the questions that people have been asking, because I haven't read this chapter in probably 20 years. Mm -hmm. But your sewer great brain just caught a lot more than, yeah. than it had originally. A lot of the stuff that people were asking about, like, where did you find out about this? How did you know? Blah, 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 blah. A lot it of it is in this chapter. <laughs> Alamaze, as mentioned in this essay, doesn't show up in Barsave. Apparently, he has yeah. a lair that's kind of just to the north, uh, mm -hmm. northeast of the Bloodwood. Maybe the um, the outcast isn't sure. He is technically because the Wormwood was his domain. He is still considered part of the Great Dragons of Barsave. But he has mm -hmm. not involved himself in Barsavian affairs in any capacity since before the Scourge. Yeah. And I think this is actually maybe a really good question to toss Lou's way, is whether mm -hmm. the decision to include Alamaze in this book, when Alamaze had not previously, aside from a mention in the history of what had gone on in the past both in the original Earthdawn core book and the Bloodwood source book from first edition, whether the inclusion yeah. of Alamaze in this book was intended mainly to spill some of the tea about the, the relationship between the dragons and, and the immortal elves, whether mm -hmm. it was something that was a hook to lead to potential exploration of Blood Elf slash Bloodwood slash possibly Shosara and Western Kingdoms slash Seriatha plot line that was kind of percolating in the background of first edition. And my response to that is actually, why not both? Lou was really, really yeah. good uh, as a developer and designer of having things serve multiple purposes. So this does really, really well in terms of providing a whole lot of background info while also raising some questions and also <laughs> potential hooks for the future. That's the best writing in Earthon. Having read this, I'm kind of sorry that I did not push to have Kyle and Carl and Michael do a little bit more with possibly tying Alamaze into the Elven Nations manuscript. Fair. Because... Alamaze, aside from the mention, I think that's in the, the history of Elven Nations, isn't mentioned or really dealt with much in any way. Um, and I'm feeling yeah. now that like that is a potential missed opportunity. And having mm -hmm. reread this going, if we do something to explore more of the wood and the mm -hmm. redemption of the wood storyline. Yeah, it's probably important that we include Alamaze in some capacity. Agreed. Because Alamaze, most people may not know, is the former master of Wormwood. Not only that, at well, least according, according to, to the information that the outcast presents here. Yes. Yes. Alamaze is the one who reportedly persuaded Jaspri to create Oakheart, mm -hmm. the mystical tree that is at the heart of Wormwood. And Wormwood yeah. was his lair and domain, and the elves that lived there were his servants, his kingdom. The regular elves, in addition to the immortal ones, because mm -hmm. the outcast comes out and says, yeah, he changed form and like slept with some elves and had his children, that the immortals are his children. Mountain Shadow does point out in his commentary on this that Alamaze is not the only one mm -hmm. who sired immortal elves. Yeah. And that it's very interesting that understanding that this is a document that was intended 
at least in part for the Dinarastis clan, mm-hmm. why he is presenting the information that he is to them in a certain yeah. way. The details that he withholds shed perhaps some light into his motivations and what's going on. He does mention quite a bit that there is potentially some bad blood that would appear between Alame's and the outcast because mm-hmm. the outcast basically says, I succeeded where he failed. <laughs> and that Alamaze's first dragonkin offspring yeah. was Kainrith. Yes. Does not come out and say at any point that Kainrith and Alakia are the same. No. They they very well may not be, but they could be. There's allusions to. There are some kind of allusions to that, yeah. Yeah. But the outcast's narrative very clearly like talks about them as if they are separate people. And it is possible mm-hmm. that they are. It could be that Alakia is just another of the really first generation. It is fairly clear to me, though, mm-hmm. that Alakia is almost certainly one of Alamaze's children. Yeah. At least that's the impression that I come out come away from this essay with. Or or perhaps just because they have different names, they're therefore they have a different pattern on the world and therefore they're treated as separate people. They just might be the same inhabited spirit, you know. I, I don't think you need to get that complex. Yeah. Lou has confirmed that Alakia has been Queen of the Wood before, just under different names. Gotcha. And it would make a lot of sense, knowing what we know about Alakia's mm-hmm. temperament and her attitude yes. and the fact that she considers herself the ultimate queen of the elves, like everything that is elf derives from her mm-hmm. and how that ties into the story that's woven here of how the elves and the immortal elves that were kind of shepherding the elves of Wormwood and consequently elven culture across sort of the known world yeah, all ended up it all plays really, really strongly into what we know about Alakia and her temperament and psychology and all the rest of that. Um, and her absolute desire to not lose the wood, to not lose her position, to not lose the respect. She is very much Alamaze's daughter. Yes, because speaking of temperament, Alamaze is a great dragon who had a disagreement with his brother dragon, which Josh will get to in a minute or so, and fled to Barsave. But based upon his temperament, Alamaze considers every living being beneath him, and he wants to rule all and believes it is his right to rule all, beginning with the Bloodwood. Well, because the Bloodwood, the Wormwood, was his territory. Like, that was his lair. He created it. He shepherded it and guided it. And the loss of it, he's a very petty dragon in some ways. He he bears quite the grudge. The fact that he does not generally have name-giver servants. Since the True. betrayal, since mm-hmm. the, the immortal elves, since his children, since the other dragon's children betrayed him, he yeah. does not trust name-givers. The lesson that he kind of took from that is a very different one than I think Mountain Shadow took from the betrayal. Part of that ties into Mountain Shadow's psychology of wanting to understand everything. I think Mountain Shadow, at least on some level, understands why whatever happened, happened. And I think Alamaze took a very different lesson, which was, okay, you ungrateful so-and-sos, I'm not going (laughs) to bother with you anymore. And his drakes, the lesser drakes or false drakes as they are alternately called are Mm -hmm. a lot more animalistic and feral and do not have the ability to assume name giver form so that Alamaze doesn't need to deal with lesser beings in that sense Mm -hmm. that there's a a primacy there's a very very distinctive draconic arrogance that that is Alamaze certainly of obviously we only discussed mountain shadow this far but is very like kind of yeah. counter to mountain shadows <laughs> mountain shadow still considers dragons to kind of be superior but he recognizes the potential of the younger mm-hmm. races 
and wants to kind of see what they can do. And I think when Mountain Shadow woke up in the 21st century with the with the arrival of the Sixth Age and saw what humanity had accomplished, yes, um, was like this is awesome. Mm-hmm. And Alamaze, who also shows up in Shadowrun, uh, is very mm-hmm. prominent in a novel and an adventure. Kind of early in the run is very much not in the same school. He is a much more like kind of classic, like bad guy dragon kind of thing. Yes. And you referenced the brother. Uh, he is never named in Earth Dawn. This is Earth another Dawn of those material. little Easter eggs <laughs> that is really kind of only there for those who were following both lines and paying attention. Alamaze's brother, it is revealed in the Shadowrun materials, is Lofuir. Mm-hmm which is to say the dragon that is head of whatever the name is of the company Rinraku is. Rinraku Arcology? No, 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 not Rinraku. Um, okay. Um, it's the German heavy industry oh, company Megacorp. Crap. Whose and name that one escapes me. now escapes me, and I can hear... It's not as technology, I know that. So keyboards not, being yeah. like hammered furiously Yep. as people try to... Or scream at us, literally. They're, they're listening in, and if they know Shadowrun, they're screaming at us, because anyway, I can't remember those anymore. Yeah. Yes, the the brother in question that drove Alamez away from his homeland in, in North Central Europe, you know, sort of the, mm-hmm. the area, the eastern edge of Vasgothia and that area, yes. into Barsave, that is a grudge that carries through into Shadowrun, because Alamaze mm-hmm. likes to take every opportunity that he can to mess with Lofuir's holdings. But Lofuir is never mentioned by name in Earthdawn. Lofuir did not ever appear, aside from these sort of mentions, uh, did not appear mm-hmm. in any Earthdawn product. We don't have any plans, nor do we, I think, have any right to uh, have Lofuir appear, even in the Vasgothia book. Yeah. We're, we're, we're leaving him alone. Fair. So speaking of classic uh, bad guy dragon, Alamaze is your classic appearing dragon so when you think of what a dragon looks like red scales maybe gold underneath this is alamaze he's your typical red scaled dragon with a yellow underbelly because i like to describe how these all look so mountain shadow was silver and blue alamaze is red and gold so just the classic look there now alamaze is that petty and is that vindictive that he's the one who killed queen dahlia because she would not swear fealty to him correct way back when yes yeah so he's he's that petty (laughs) as far as i'm concerned dahlia was not one of the immortals dahlia was not Mm -hmm. really fully cognizant of the immortal history and the connection between the great dragons alamaze Mm -hmm. in particular and the the history of the elven court in bloodwood yeah but yeah he killed her, and it was from that that he earned the moniker Elfbane. Yeah. That's because, really, Elfbane is his real name, and Alamaze is with the name giver's column, I believe, unless I have that backwards. But anyway, uh, when the Bloodwood, sorry, when the Wormwood did the Ritual of Thorns and converted over to the Bloodwood, that actually severed his connection to that uh, wood and um, all of his threads are gone from there. So he no longer has, he'd like to personally lay claim to the wood, but the magic he had tied to that is no more. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The multiple layers. One of the things that the outcast theorizes within Mm -hmm. his essay on Alamaze is Perhaps the reason that Alakia did not see the need to take up the Theron Rites of Protection was because of the magic that Alamaze had woven into the fabric of the wood itself, and that that, in conjunction with her own not insignificant magical knowledge, would be sufficient to protect the wood from the horrors, acting as kind of a dragon lair of sorts. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that didn't work, but the consequences, we've talked about the Ritual of Thorns and all of the stuff that it did, the renaming of the wood, had the fortunate side effect of maybe it also fractured all of the magical connections that Alamaze still had to the wood 
even at that yeah. point, despite the fact that he had not been resident in it for quite some time. Because, of course, great dragons are really, really good with pattern magic and probably would have had connections to the wood that he would have been able to take advantage of. Mm-hmm. So Alamaze is something perhaps as a game master that you would want to consider if you are going to be running a game that is going to be heavily involving the politics of the Bloodwood and the fate of the mm-hmm. Bloodwood and the potential redemption of the Bloodwood. The Outcast does mention that possibly the Seekers of the Heart, the living legend yeah. cult that is dedicated to the redemption of the Wood, might be backed or supported in some uh, direct or indirect way by Alamaze. That basically Alamaze's one concern is the Wood. And he offers some ways, some suggestions to the Denerastus, along with some warnings as to how they might be able to manipulate this single driving force of Alamaze to meet their ends. That ultimately, the outcast in his arrogance is basically like, yeah, I'm smarter than all of the rest of them. And here's some ways Mm -hmm. that we might be able to manipulate either the wood or Alamaze or both in order to do what we want. Yeah. You know, Mountain Shadow keeps kind of mentioning in his asides, hey, look, this is what he is telling his children. (laughs) Don't believe Mm -hmm. what he might be offering you as a way of getting the wood back because he'll turn around. This is for his own ends. Ultimately, this is not going to be of a benefit to you. If he gets what he is after the outcast, as I mentioned, does have some warnings that if Alamaze kind of finds out that the Denerastus are a success where he failed, Mm -hmm. um, that he would take it rather personally. Yeah. And a great dragon being upset is not a good thing. Not not a good thing. No, (laughs) because Alamaze knows clearly. I mean, he's one of the original dragons. He knows a lot of magic. Yeah. And he primarily likes elementalism. So, you know, that's why he, you know, helped build the wood because in Earth Dawn, as you may, may should know by now, <clears throat> wood is one of the five elements. So he knows a lot. I just remembered, by the way, the corporation that Lofuir is head of in Shadowrun is Seder Krupp. Oh, good. Seder? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, in German, usually the second anyway vowel is pronounced. So Seder Krupp, yeah. Completely irrelevant, but I wanted our <laughs> listeners to know that I did remember you do not need to send. If you've already sent the email, that's fine. But if you have not sent the email yet, there is no need to send the email. We know. We figured it out. Josh looked it up. I didn't actually He's look it up. up. I was I grabbed my Shadowrun second edition book thinking I'd be able to find it in there, and I couldn't easily. And then I was just putting yeah. it up. I'm like, that's what it is. There you go. I have the same thing. Everyone's all just, you know, hold the book in your hand and go, that's what it is. But it'll, it'll trigger the memory in there somewhere. So, um, where were we? Anything else we should bring up about Alamaze? Well, I think you were in the middle of something, but like, it seemed like you were in the middle of something before I. No, I was just, I'm like, yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, don't deal with this dragon. (laughs) Cause he's nasty. He's mean. He's, he's the bad guy. Because he has not been involved with the affairs of the Dragon Council of Barsafe, because he has largely been off on his own, nursing his own grudges and plans with regards to the Wormwood and the Immortal Elves and all of that, the only real way that he would be involved in a game would be something that is relating to the wood in some sense. Fair. Otherwise, yeah, you'd pretty much want to avoid using Alamaze unless you desperately have to, because <clears throat> he's not going to treat any name giver uh, with any amount of respect. They're all beneath him. He is your typical um, malignant narcissist <laughs> type thing. Yeah, in some that's respects. Where, where, um, uh, the outcast does <laughs> say that the betrayal by Kainreth is the reason that the great dragons mm-hmm. forbid further mating of dragons with younger races. Gotcha. And and there are a lot of answers that are given in this essay. There are a few other interesting ones that are hinted at, but not answered. Like mm-hmm. in response to the history of things, uh, Mountain Shadows commentary, the children of the dragons do not solely belong to Elfbane. Elfbane, they are all our children, errant though they may be. Indeed, if it weren't for the disaster which followed the rebellion, 
We kind uh-huh. of know what the rebellion is, but the disaster followed <laughs> it. Yeah. <laughs> I talked about the idea that the magic cycle was artificially created, that it is the result of an yeah. unforeseen side effect of some kind of ritual magic. And it's possible that it wasn't the dragon's ritual magic, but it was part of the the rebellion, part of the immortal elves that were yeah. fighting against their parents Creators. to seize control and tried to do something to force them into hibernation that kicked off the magic cycle. And if that's the case, I mean, that seems kind of weird in a sense, because that sounds to me like something that Canerith slash Alakia likely would have been involved with and would have taken mm-hmm. a very different, potentially a very different lesson from when it comes to yeah. ritual magic and the unforeseen consequences thereof. But that would explain like the like ripples in the water when you, when you dunk a, yeah. a, a pebble in a pond, just the up and down cycles of magic would be the ripples. Uh, therefore, again, Mountain Shadow is being cagey because the people that he is mm-hmm. talking to who are the who are the other great dragons know what he's yes. talking about. He doesn't yes. need to spell it out because they know. And I think they it's know. a it's a great bit of writing. Obviously, they're talking about something that they all know what he's referring to. So he doesn't need to spell it out. Mm-hmm. We don't get this kind of stupid like made in butler dialogue. If it weren't for the disaster, which, as you know, was when blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's very, this thing happened. You know what I'm talking about when he's also talking about mm-hmm. the rebellion. Like, we know, you know what happened. We talked about in the Mountain Shadow episode. We were Remember what happened the last <laughs> time, because we were all there. You know, you don't need me to tell you. I'm just reminding you. Yeah. Remember that thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that kind of covers that. Alamaze is the dragon that you kind of maybe look to if you're dealing with mm-hmm. major elven stuff. Yeah. And you're, and he's not likely he's not likely to be friendly to anybody. Oh, not in any way, shape, or form. No. No. You better be armed to the teeth if you're gonna go even try to have a conversation with him, because he's not gonna grant you an audience unless you really have something to give him. But <clears throat> other than that, um, I think that covers the high points and low points, especially of Alamaze and his involvement yeah. with the, the Bloodwood and Wormwood, depending upon which time you want to talk about. So if you have any questions for us about Alamaze, the great dragon or anything else we talked about in the episode or thoughts or commentary, or anything thoughts. like if anything, if you wanted the tea on the whole like elf dragon thing, grab the dragon source book and yeah. read that Alamaze chapter. Uh-huh. It doesn't reveal everything, but that's where a lot of information a lot of hints are comes a little bit more clear yes a lot of hints are dropped there so until next time folks it is time for you to be the bane elf bane of your own legend good night everybody <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>